Well, good morning. How are y'all doing this morning? Doing good. Well, thank you. Well, that well. is good. It is wonderful to be on with you all again today, and we're going to jump right into our our topics. And really, what we're centering on today is we're centering on uh, the gospel and covenant theology. And so, as we look at this today, I just wanted to start by uh, kicking us off and, and talking in general about this, and 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 you guys will will go through your chapters and talk specifically about uh, these things, but. Uh, just one thing we really need to note at the beginning here when we start is that uh, there is a difference between Reformed Baptist Covenant Theology and Presbyterian Covenant Theology. There is a difference in Covenant Theology as it is expressed in the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith and as it is expressed in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so uh, we want to just acknowledge that right at the outset uh, we are working, as you know, uh, those who listen to us through Joel Beakey's Reformed Systematic Theology. Uh, Joel Beakey, uh, we love our, our brothers. We love so many of our Presbyterian brothers, but but he is Presbyterian. And uh, being Presbyterian, there is a different view concerning covenant theology, and there are different views on other things. And as I was thinking about this, Mike and Marvin and Will, it, it, it's amazing the differences that we have between our Presbyterian brothers, so much of it centers on covenant theology. I mean, we think obviously about the the, the major difference, which is baptism, and uh, what what makes one go one way and one go the other way. Well, it's covenant theology. How you view uh, God's covenants that He's made with man gets you toward well. How do you how do you view the sign of the covenant, which in the New Testament would be baptism? Uh, we, we think about the church. Uh, we think about the doctrine of the church, and there's uh, a bit of a difference in uh, the church as it is formed institutionally between Reformed Baptists and Presbyterians, and that, again, comes out of covenant theology. And so so, so there's a, a big difference here. So what I wanted to do is just sort of uh, set the table here at the beginning by just giving a little, a few introductory remarks and then we'll go into the specifics, and you guys can can lead us there. But but I thought what was very helpful was uh, I just want to read a, a little section by Brandon Adams, which I highly recommend. His website is called 1689federalism.com. It's, it's very, very good. It really, really codifies Reformed Baptist covenant theology. And so here's what he says. Uh, it's a, it, This is his answer in his frequently asked questions section. And the question is, did the covenant of grace exist during the Old Testament? And, and a lot of what we talk about, especially you, Marvin, what will center on this. And so he says this, 1689 Federalism, or basically that's just another way of saying Reformed Baptist Covenant Theology, teaches that only the new covenant is the covenant of grace. Neither the Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, nor Davidic covenants were the covenant of grace. Neither was the covenant of grace established in Genesis 3.15. The question then naturally arises, did the covenant of grace exist during the Old Testament? The 1689 Federalism answer to this question centers around the meaning of established and the word enacted from Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. First, the second London Baptist Confession of Faith states in chapter 7, paragraph 3, that it is alone by the grace of this covenant that all the posterity of fallen Adam 
that ever were saved did obtain life and blessed immortality. Among its reference on this particular statement are Hebrews chapter 11, verses 6 and 13, and he quotes the verse. He says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith Noah, dot, dot, dot. By faith Abraham, dot, dot, dot. And then he says, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, having confessed they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And then he quotes Romans chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. What then shall we say about Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. But what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then he quotes John chapter 8, verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then Brandon writes, Thus, when we identify the covenant of grace with the new covenant alone, we do not exclude those who lived before the establishment of the new covenant, notably Abraham, from this covenant of grace, nor do we believe that they waited to receive this grace until the death of Christ. In sum, this new covenant of grace was extant and effectual under the Old Testament, so as the church was saved by virtue thereof. Then he goes on to say, how can we affirm this while at the same time holding that the new covenant of grace was not established until the death of Christ? In the same way that we can affirm that Abraham and the other Old Testament saints were covered by the blood of Christ prior to Christ's actual death upon the cross. And then he cites uh, Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 8, paragraph 6. He goes on to say, Christ promised the Father that he would fulfill his work in the covenant of redemption, thus securing the redemption of the elect. This, Thus, it was a guarantee, a guaranteed certainty that the Old Testament saints could take to the bank. In other words, the new covenant was effectual prior to the death of Christ as an advance on its formal establishment in the future, similar to the way a person can receive a cash advance on their paycheck prior to payday. If the new covenant of grace was in effect since Genesis 3.15, then how can we say it was not established until the death of Christ? First, because its legal effectiveness as a covenant is entirely rooted in the death of Christ. Second, because the establishment of the new covenant refers also to its being reduced into a fixed state of a law or ordinance, to its being made visible that which before had no visible outward worship proper and particular unto it was then made the only rule and instrument of worship unto the whole church. And then he summarizes and he says this, the basic idea of the covenant of grace revealed and in effect prior to its legal establishment, where it is given ordinances of worship is articulated by Lewis Burkhoff. And so he's quoting a Presbyterian here. He says, quote, the first revelation of the covenant is found in the proto-evangelical, Genesis 3.15. Some deny that this has any reference to the covenant, and it certainly does not refer to any formal establishment of a covenant. Up to the time of Abraham, there was no formal establishment of the covenant of grace. While Genesis 3.15 already contains the elements of this covenant, it does not record a formal transaction by which the covenant was established. It does not even speak explicitly of a covenant. The establishment of the covenant with Abraham marked the beginning of an institutional church. And, and, we would, I would take odds with that. I, I would say uh, universal church for sure, but not the institutional church. And so, and and then uh, he gives a quote by Samuel Renahan, and I'm just going to read this this paragraph, and I'll be done, guys. Uh, but he says this: Samuel Renahan writes, 
the language of administration. And that's what we're going to talk about, specifically you, Marvin. You're going to talk about administrations of the covenant of grace. The language of administration is extremely, extremely nebulous and problematic. Many responses to the above videos and data, he's referring to the stuff on 1689 federalism, have pushed back by saying that the old covenants were means through which the Old Testament believers obtained salvation and thus were administrations in the sense of getting thing A to person B. Surely that is the case. London Baptist Confession 8.6 confesses this, but while the use of administration in the Westminster Confession of Faith includes the notion of getting thing A to person B, its use of administration refers more fully to a diverse manner of dispensing and outward managing the making of the covenant with men, but the covenant was still one and the same, clothed and set forth in a diverse manner, and did no other ways differ then and now, but as one and the same man differs from himself, clothed suitably one way in his minority and another in his riper age. That's David Dixon he's quoting there. So he says this, The question is, was the Old Covenant a visible organizational form of covenantal life for the covenant of grace? The question is not, were the benefits of Christ's mediation available in the Old Covenant? All are agreed on the second question. It is the first question that needs careful answering. This is the difference between the substance of the covenant of grace being revealed in the Old Covenant and actually being the Old Covenant in an older form. So I know that's a lot, and I know uh, it, it's complicated, it's word, uh, wordy. I, I would just, for those who are listening to us, I would just commend, uh, get Sam Renahan's book, uh, The Mystery of the Kingdom of Christ. It is excellent. It, he really lays it down in a very simple manner. It's not excessively wordy or anything like that. So I would highly, highly encourage that. So brothers, with that being said, just want to toss it out to you guys. And Will, will you start us off this morning, taking us down this road? Awesome. Yes. Uh, so the what we're talking about here is the eternal covenant with God's son and those in union with him. So in the last chapter, what we talked about is the perpetual continuity of God's gospel, meaning that Christ was the same promise that like you just said, redeemed those who are in, who had faith in the, in the promise in the old Testament was, was Christ. It was his work on the cross. It was like you said, it was saved on credit. Um, I, I really liked that analogy of the cash advance to the, um, to payday, you know, and, and when Christ died on the cross, it was payday. So now we being on this side of, of what Christ did on the cross uh, have that in it's been paid in full we right. have that account it's already the money's there yeah christ but, is a surety or guarantee surety, yeah right yeah. and the guarantee's already been paid right you know whereas before it was there was a guarantee of something that hadn't happened yet hmm. so that's a, it's an excellent framework but um my chapter chapter 30 but he deals specifically. Oh, no. oh no! <laughs> Wait a minute. Hold I'm on. sorry. Yeah, we had 29, 30, and 31 is what Van sent out. So, and because I prepared for 31, am I? It, Hold on, uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Referee, uh, can you? Well, Will, let's tag team on 30 then. 
shoot. Okay, well, let's go back to 29. This is good. I can uh, I can wing it, I guess. Holy Extemporaneous, crap, Will. Extemporaneous. I'm so sorry. I, I had uh, planned out Chapter 30 for some reason. Um, well, we, we, we can all talk about this, uh, the perpetual continuity of God's gospel. Man. Not a problem, brother. You got you got uh, three three uh, very friendly judges right here. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, l l let's just think about this. Let's talk this out. So, uh, when and sort of the Brandon quote that 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 I read a second ago. Yeah. It, it is a question: How can God save people? Okay, if, if we're saved through Christ through His atoning work upon the cross, how can He save people? in the old testament and will you already alluded to that but yeah. uh but can you kind of take us deeper into that if uh what what did god have to do okay so atonement is made at the cross we're talking 2000 a.d right. but how does someone like abraham get saved 6000 bc so this all comes down to faith in the promise and the the promise that was given to eve in the garden that mm -hmm. the seed would crush the serpent's head and that promise is what people relied on it wasn't so it, like you were talking about in or adams was talking about in his um discourse on hebrews 11 it was by faith that abraham believed god and it was counted to him as righteousness the that same faith it was faith in the promise of the seed that, that would crush the serpent's head mm-hmm and so those that's what saved people in the Old Testament. Um, and that's what they refer to in, in this chapter, in chapter 29, is uh, faith, in the, faith in Christ and the first promise of salvation. That was the first promise of salvation was that uh, the, the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. In Genesis 3.15, he says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Um, so that's what we're talking about there. The next thing is faith in Christ and the promise among the Hebrew patriarchs. So uh, that's the, that's kind of like what we're talking about. From the line of Noah's son, Shem, all the way to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob, those, it was, for him to live by faith, God called Abraham out and apart. That promised blessing for so that all the nations would be blessed by him and his seed. That's a mm -hmm. continuation of the promise from the garden through Abraham and his offspring. Um, God right. also And I, I was going to just jump in and say this too, Will. You're saying one word over and over and over and over again. And I think it's key. It's the word promise. Yeah. And, and that, that really is the difference I believe between them and us, they, they believed in a promised person. We on our side of Christ just believe in a person because right. it has been fulfilled. And so even as you're talking about, it all started with, with the proto evangelion, the first gospel, Genesis three fifteen, And then, and then the Lord even, uh, builds upon that i mean you see that i think Beaky talks about that with the the sacrifices and things like that but even in the sacrifices those are just promises those are pictures that are pointing to a promise that that is about a person 
And so yeah. still we're dealing in that realm of, of a promised person. They have to believe in a, a promised person going forward. Yeah. And the means as an administration. Yeah. Right. So the next is faith in Christ under the law of Moses. And so it's, again, it's, it's, it's interesting. So if you look at this through the lens of uh, biblical theology, as in biblical theology doesn't look, you start to see it develop over time. It's not something you, from the beginning, you see Christ fulfilled, but you see the revelation of God continually revealing himself to his people in a more deeper and profound way as time goes on. And so first you had this promised Eve in the garden, which is, is kind of, um, it's very vague. You know, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Eve thought that Cain and Abel were going to be, one of those is going to be the ones to fulfill that promise. And Cain ended up killing his brother Abel. And so clearly that wasn't it. But then there was Shem. And then you, I'm thinking of Shem. I'm sorry. Um, Seth. You think yeah. of Seth. One of those X words. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're down so, to know one now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then, so what you see, though, is God then revealing more through the covenant with Noah, a little bit more deeper. And then, and then through Abraham, that promise of the offspring that will bless the nations. And that offspring is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. But at that time, when you're looking at biblical theology, you don't actually see that. You know, you, you just see like there's this promise that the seed will end up blessing the nations. And then you see it develop through the law of Moses, too. Um, Israel's redemption was a grand type of salvation in Christ. This is page 577. God redeemed his people, not because of their obedience, but in order that they should be his special people who would obey him. And I'm, I'm reading this. And also in our family worship at home, we're going to Exodus right now. We talked about. We're just getting to the point where God is establishing his law with his people. So he's brought them out of the land of Egypt. They're out Mount, they're at Mount Sinai right now. And God is giving them this covenant and it's for them to be his people and for them to be a, a kind of a, a mediator between God and the nation so that they can proclaim to the nations, the goodness and glory of God. And so that's what you see here is it's a, again, the further development of this promise in the Old Testament of the salvific work of Christ um, that will ultimately be fulfilled in Christ. Mm -hmm. So then, and I stop me if I'm going too fast, I'm sorry, because I'm no, no, go ahead. I can't catch up. So you see that from the, the this chapter, in the, I found this to be very, very helpful because when you're, if you don't, if you don't have a deep understanding of theology and you didn't grow up in a church that really placed a heavy emphasis on theology or, or really even uh, expositional preaching, that's a big question that looms out in a lot of people's minds is how, how, if, if Christ is the only way to salvation, which Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life, and nobody comes to the father, but by me, that promise wasn't just for the new Testament people, but was for people in all eternity mm -hmm. from, from the beginning to the end, Christ is the only way to salvation. And so if that's the case, then how did God make that happen in this chapter? If you're curious about how that happens, I would highly recommend you read chapter 29 because that answers that question. How does God, how did God in the old Testament save sinners? 
and it's through that promise. Um, so the next thing, and, and this is, again, one of the things I really love about this book, is he doesn't just give you the head knowledge of theology, but gives you practical applications of the continuity of the gospel and practical applications for every topic that we're covering. So this principle, that the, the principle of the perpetual continuity of God's gospel is the principle that Christ alone is the mediator of salvation. And that principle has several important applications to the Christian life. And that can be found on page 380 of the perpetual continuity of God's gospel. And when we're talking about the five solas, this is solus Christus. Number one, we should trust in Christ alone for salvation. From beginning to end, God has saved sinners only by faith in Christ. Do you think that you will be saved in a manner different from Abraham, David, or Peter? Submit to God's righteousness, which is found in Jesus Christ. Do not seek to add to it. Look not to your good works, the church's ceremonies, or the intercession of the saints. Rest your hope for salvation on Christ crucified and risen from the dead. Christ is the all-sufficient Savior for all people who would draw near to God. That is powerful. Mm, and is. that that's the thing. Jesus said, and it's a simple statement that Jesus said, and it, but it's profound. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now, the next practical application, and this I would I would highly recommend to everybody too, is read the whole Bible to know Christ. You shouldn't just look at the New Testament, but read the whole Bible because from the beginning to the end, the whole thing is about God's plan of redemption for his people, and the only way he does that is through Jesus Christ. And you see that develop through from Genesis to the Gospels. He's revealed, and then he's explained in the epistles, and then he's expected in the in the Revelation. And I stole that from Alistair Begg, by the way. That wasn't a Will Wittenbrook original. Um, Good but it's still it's, it's so important <laughs> to know Christ through the whole Bible. Because you don't get an aspect of God's holiness without reading the Old Testament. You, you kind of get it a little bit in the New Testament through the things, the miracles that Jesus did. But you really get a full picture of the holiness of God and God's, God's justice and his wrath from the Old Testament. And that sets the stage for why Jesus needed to come in the first place. Because God's holy, he's just, and he justly punishes sinners in his wrath. And the only way to escape that is through the promise of Jesus Christ that was fulfilled on his in his death, burial, and resurrection. Um, the third practical application is we should preach Christ from all Scripture. And it's the same point. The whole, all of the Bible testifies to the Lord Jesus Christ. It shouldn't be like, well, this, this Old Testament thing just happened here and leave people hanging. No, you want, even when you're preaching through Leviticus, you're talking about how in Leviticus, God was making a way to be with his people through the, these ritual cleansing ceremonies and, and setting up these, these ceremonial laws. But all of that was fulfilled in Christ. Now we can be united with God through Christ. Yeah, um, and isn't that what uh, what the Lord himself did with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus? He showed himself through all the scriptures. Right. Now... The fourth one is we should trust in the faithfulness of God and Father of Jesus Christ. 
And if you, you, you hear that, and you're like, of course I should trust in God as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But really what that's saying is, from the beginning, God has been saying this over and over and over again. He's been making a way to be with his people through this promised seed that's ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And when you take a step back and you think about the Bible and how it was written over such a vast span of time by several different authors, but it's saying one consistent theme and message, that should tell you about God and who he is and the faithfulness that he has to his people. Time and time again, scripture testifies that God is faithful. God does what he sets out to do. When he tells you he's going to do something, he does it. And that's something that you see through the perpetual continuity of God's gospel. You see that that promise of Christ from the beginning, from Genesis 3.15, all the way to the gospels. And even the promise that we have now in Revelation that what's to come in the future is that God is faithful. He promised that he will redeem his people and he's done it and he will continue to do it. Um, number five, we should count as one family believers in Christ from all times and places. And this one's interesting. It says the one gospel of God has saved people from immensely different cultures and peoples. Adam was the fallen king of the world. Abraham was a nomadic sheik from Mesopotamia. Moses was a powerful and highly educated man in the royal courts of Pharaoh and Egypt. Rahab was a prostitute in, ancient, in an ancient pagan city. When the gospel went forth into the Roman Empire, God saved Jews and Gentiles, slaves and freemen, Greeks and barbarians. If you are a Christian, this is your family. Cherish your heritage and love God's people despite all the differences among us. And six, we should send the gospel of Christ to all nations. And that, again, that goes from that promise that first to Abraham about how his seed would be a blessing to the nations. That same promise goes to us today that we having our, our Christ's seed, we are the, the elect of God. We are to be a blessing to the nations to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations. And that, that picture is, you see it fulfilled in revelation, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue praising the Lord. It has nothing to do with ethnic boundaries. It has nothing to do with race. It has one. It has to do with people who have put their faith in Christ from all of creation. Mm. And number seven, finally, we should anticipate in the eternal joy of the eternal city of God, international joy. Excuse me, the international joy of the eternal city of God. When the kingdom of glory comes, believers from all over the world will join with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the saints of all angels in glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. Um, when I read this, the thing that I think about when I read that part in Revelation, when I went to Liberty, there, there was a missions emphasis week that they did every year. And they would have all these different mission organizations come. And we would have this corporate um, chapel Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Well, Wednesday was the big one for the commuters and everybody who didn't live on campus. And that week on that Wednesday, they would have what's called the Parade of Nations. And they'd be there'd be a time of worship. And then they would have people from every nation with their flag from their nation come into the into the arena. And it just it was a beautiful picture of what eternity is going to look like. People from every nation, tribe and tongue worshiping the Father. And so that 
in a nutshell, is the perpetual continuity of God's gospel that from the beginning of time to Christ to now, God has had one plan of salvation, and that is through Jesus Christ alone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, thank you so much for that, Will. And one thing I I, I do want to point out is one uh, something that Joe Beakey says. He says it on page three uh, five hundred eighty, and uh, you know, I was started out talking about the things that we don't agree on as far as our Presbyterian brothers and, and Reformed Baptists. But here's definitely something we, we can surely agree on. He writes this. He says, the first and most fundamental thesis of covenant theology is the community of God's God, the continuity, excuse me, of God's gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the unbreakable cable that holds together all of God's covenantal dealings. The whole Bible, not just the New Testament, is the word of Christ, yet God's revelation of Christ is progressive. And we can say amen to that, even as we would maybe differ with our brothers and and not seeing that you, you've got one covenant of grace that has these different administrations. We would say the covenant of grace is the new covenant alone, but you've got these other covenants that are that are promissory, that are leading up to it. They announce the new covenant. They promise the new covenant, but they are not the covenant of grace. Uh, but yet we can say that there's graciousness in these covenants. I mean, just for God to simply condescend to make a covenant with man, that in and of itself is, is graciousness on God's part. He, he does not have to do that. So, uh, so that's just something we can all agree on. So I just wanted to, to point that out real quick. All right. Well, uh, well, we will move on. Thank you so much for that, Will. And next we want to go to, uh, to Mike. Mike, lead us into this. Let's talk more about okay. covenant theology here, brother. Okay, well, uh, actually, this is this gets can get pretty deep uh, on this chapter, but uh, he starts out uh, with the uh, uh, this chapter is over the eternal covenant with God's Son and those in union with Him, and he starts out with the de definition of the of a covenant, and he says a covenant is a solemn promise that functions as a legal instrument to define a relationship of loyalty. And then uh, that's previously in our previous discussions. I mean, we, that's been uh, that that definition was given us and given to us in chapter fourteen of this same volume, and uh, it was reemphasized in chapter twenty-seven as well. But uh, then he goes in. And he says, "Okay, we have uh, promises and relationships uh, require more than one party." So, uh, and he, so then he goes in and explaining, "Okay, who are these parties of the covenant of grace?" And uh, and then he brings in the uh, the uh, Westminster Larger Catechism, question twenty one uh, says the covenant of grace was made with this with Christ as the second I Adam, and in him all with with him all the elect is his seed. Uh, so on one side we have we have God, and then on the other side uh, there's uh, Jesus Christ and his, his people that are in union with him. And then he goes on like kind of like a well, I kind of stopped there and paused, and I said, I went over there, and you mentioned it earlier, Van. I went over there and grabbed uh, Renahan's book that we we started with. Uh, why I can't remember uh, back in our disciple book talk. Yeah, I think book it was the stuff. second book. Yeah, and I started going through that, and I said, Man, I, I, I better not. I'm reading that than trying to crosswalk it to this, and I just <laughs> so I, <laughs> I put it back. But anyway, so he, he kind of goes into yeah, like that's more time this. than we have. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He kind of goes into like uh, I I relate this to okay, if 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 I if this if this if this then this so he goes in and he starts by defining in his introduction so we uh, if 
if Christ is an eternal person, which he is, uh, then he is, the, he is the son of God and he's the second person of the Trinity. So those are all facts he lays out. Uh, then or therefore uh, to say the covenant was made between God and Christ implies the covenant of grace is an eternal arrangement. And so then this brought to immediately mind the, the work of the, the uh, of all, all persons or divine entities of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together um, uh, with, with the, uh, the covenant. Uh, so he goes on and he, he uh, uh, says that, uh, therefore, to say the covenant was made between God and Christ implies the covenant of grace is an eternal arrangement, not merely the promise revealed to humanity, humanity at various times. And then he goes into the larger catechism that how it reminds us that God also made the promises of covenant grace and those in union with Christ. So that that's uh, not just God and Jesus, but also the people that are in union with Christ. So this implies that the covenant grace uh, is revealed in history and calls forth a, a personal and practical response from God's people. For in it, God freely offered unto sinners life uh, and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved. And so then he goes in and he starts bringing in the uh, uh, a term, uh, this eternal mode of the covenant of grace. You know, uh, he says it's uh, some uh, call it the council of peace. And we see that in Zechariah 613. And, that, and I'll just read that real quick. Uh, it is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule, excuse me, sit and rule on the thro on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both, between them both. Um, and uh, then he went in and said, some people refer to this, uh, this arrangement, this, uh, this arrangement being this, I guess, council of peace and this eternal covenant, a covenant of redemption and the, uh, pactum uh, salutis, the Latin for the uh, covenant of salvation. Mm -hmm. And so then he's, uh, he looks at this and says, okay, now uh, we, we got this. So let's look at this or examine this, this, this in light of biblical basis for this doctrine. Uh, it's, historical it's historical development, the theological implications and practical applications uh, of this uh, doctrine. Um, and so I'll just, uh, what, what I found uh, interesting in this is I, he, he gave numerous examples of biblical basis for saying, hey, this, this covenant existed. It's an eternal covenant. It existed uh, earlier in the years. It just wasn't um, uh, re re revealed like it, it's revealed on this side of the cross that we are on. Um, so he starts out by introducing the, the, uh, the uh, predestination of the mediator. And he starts by um, uh, that he, he up front, he says, it's plain that in the Bible that God made covenants with his people. We see that and we read that in the Old Testament. We see that. Mm -hmm. But it, it, but he says it's not really obvious uh, unless you really look at it, that God, the father made a covenant with the son uh, as well. And um, and he's. He says the doctrine arises from the clear teaching of the Holy Scriptures regarding the mission of Christ to save sinners. So he's saying there is in there, and here's the basis. And so then he starts exploring the uh, biblical testimony. And the first one he brings up is uh, the uh, predestination um, of the mediator. Uh, and he, he highlights Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verses 3, uh, three through 4, that uh, blessed be God and uh, 
the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who had blessed us in Christ and every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us before him, the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So, um, and then in 2 Timothy, he, he uh, it, it reads, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And then if you go in and you look at John, you know, uh, uh, Jesus was always there. I mean, he's then uh, this agreement. Uh, uh, so he's laying a foundation for saying, hey, the, the, the Trinity is was always there. It, it always existed. And this agreement, uh, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit made this agreement uh, bef uh, before time began. Um, let's see. And he, re he referenced the, uh, Christ being the Lamb. So it's all, uh, and that's in First Peter. And then he's for, he's he's foreordaining or literally uh, foreknowledge that uh, that uh, an act of God in eternity past where he de determined that his son would come as savior of mankind. And then he quotes Horton. He said Horton uh, wrote the doctrines of the Trinity and predestination are God's decrees converge at a point of the eternal covenant of redemption between the persons of the Godhead. Um, so. He says the person whom we speak, however, is not the one who came into being at the point in history and was thus subject to God's decree, but a person already existing in the beginning. The word who was, it was with God and was God. He's not merely God's servant, but the only begotten son. So uh, and then he brings in the starts talking more about the, the uh, intra Trinitarian Council. And this this again remind me of uh, of. Uh, of Renahan's book um, when he was talking about the Trinity and how we talked about it during the discipleship group meeting about how how the Trinity worked together in each and each of the part of the Trinity uh, was 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 executing his plan and the essence of its roles and responsibilities in the Trinity and to me it just to me it shows God's love for His Son and and the Son's love for the for the Father and the Son's love for those He saved and then the mm -hmm. Spirit uh, you know. Uh, having a role in, in that as well. And I think that's talked about later in the chapter, but uh, it really lays out. And uh, 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 again, I, I like Renahan's book, but it, the, the work of the Trinity and, and this eternal um, covenant. Yeah. And so uh, one, one thing I read one time before that really stood out to me, Mike, was that uh, how, I mean, th this is just so Trinitarian. This is the father, uh, giving a love gift to the son of people, the son going and, and redeeming the people and the spirit applying that redemption to them. And then, you know, even as we're learning in, in our discipleship group with the uh, hiking of heaven, you know, at the end of it all, at the consummation, uh, you know, the son consumes it all. He consummates it all. He brings it all into, into its final stage, but then he lays everything down at the feet of the father so that all glory can redound to the father. I mean, it really is a Trinitarian love. Uh, I don't, I don't know what to say e event or action that's taking place. And, and, and we just get caught up in that. I mean, we being the, that, that people, I mean, praise the Lord that we can, we, we benefit and, and we get heaven out of it. But it really is just the Trinity loving all the the various persons of the Trinity. Yeah, not only that, I yeah. think that uh, it, it's also a, a good lesson in the fact that subordination can can lead to honor. Um, yeah, and, and again, it's a it's a lesson we need to learn today in terms of our uh, uh, the roles we have and trying to redefine the roles in human relationships, particularly in marriage. 
is yeah. to see is to see that incomplete and utter obedience and loving obedience to uh, insubordination to what is your duty or uh, at, at, that in the end there's there's great honor to that and i think that's reflected in human relationships as well yeah the uh not trying to jump ahead but when you look at this and each we starts out by defining the uh what a covenant is uh, the uh uh a relationship promise and when it has uh, uh like a legal instrument but you got to think of go back to the when we started in our earlier discussions we broke down uh okay what what are the who are the parties and what are the roles and responsibilities? And you, you talk, we talk about uh, the headship, uh, prophet, priest, king. Uh, and in, in Zechariah that I read earlier, and it said, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Uh, and, it, uh, to, and if you think about it, um, Christ, when he, Christ's role that he was doing there, he was, he was prophet, priest, and king. And we can, look, we can look at Hebrews and how Hebrews reads and tells us. So it's not two persons, but it, it's it's Christ fulfilling multiple roles. That that's what that's talking about, and that's that's talking about that in the Old Old Testament. <laughs> uh, that we we see this. That's it's Christ wearing multiple hats or multiple roles that he he is accomplishing as part of this covenant. Hmm. Um, and uh, then it, it goes on and he talks about the divine oath of the priest king, and again uh, we see that in the. Uh, and the Hebrews in, in Psalm 110, uh, another line of evidence for the council of peace arises from God's oath concerning David's Lord. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Uh, the Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, I mean, uh, we see this promise. It, it's this, this covenant promise between God and Christ. Uh, uh, it's, 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 it's just like uh, the covenant with David was, just, it's a promise, a sworn promise. Um, so, uh, so by this oath, this, this covenant, this, this oath that uh, God made, uh, uh, he highlights uh, that Jesus was made a surety of a better testament. That is, he undertook to pay his people's uh, covenantal obligations to God. And that, so I think that's, we got to remember that it was brought up earlier in, in in chapter 29 by Will and Marvin, uh, that mm -hmm. when we look at stuff and we say, how can this happen? Well, it, it was it, the, the this oath or this promise was a surety that Christ uh, uh, Jesus was a was a surety for 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 this. And, and hence, uh, those before uh, Christ uh, uh, came on, came, took on flesh, lived a perfect life and, and died for for all sinners. Uh, the, 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 this this promise was a surety uh, for for the, uh, before the cross. Um, it said, "When did God make this covenant with Christ?" Uh, it can be argued uh, that, and this gets into what we were talking about earlier, that made this covenant with Christ at His heavenly coronation at the right hand. However, the covenant can, could not have been ratified for the first time when Christ ascended to heaven, for Christ's priestly office rests upon this oath. And then he goes in, he says, the sons of Aaron were made priests without an oath, but by, by this oath was Jesus made surety. Therefore, the sworn covenant of God with Christ must have preceded his death, resurrection, and ascension, for it was as the high priest of his people that he offered himself up once and for all on the cross. So um, 
His death was not merely to save those under the New Testament, also for the redemption of uh, the transgression that were under the First Testament, so that they, uh, um, uh, which are called, might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So, again, uh, it goes back to, I, I guess, the that what we talked about in chapter twenty-nine kind of builds on it. It's it's the, the that uh, th that's how these individuals uh, before Christ were were saved. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I won't go through all of them because uh, I know our time. Um, let me see uh, another good one. Yeah, the parallel. He talks about the parallel of uh, Adam and Christ. Uh, another biblical uh, uh, theme pointing to us to the direction of the covenant between God and and His Son. Uh, is found in the scripture passage that compare and contrast Christ and Adam. Adam is a figure or type of Christ, and we see and that's that's uh, we see that in Romans uh, five fourteen discussed, and it's significant for the covenant of theology because uh, the uh, the Bible presents God's dealing with Adam before the fall as a covenant that inflicted death upon all of Adam's natural descendants as punishment for his disobedience. And I, I, I like this, what he said this, and I can't remember what page it was on, but I, I made note of it. It said, Adam was God's son who was tested. He was tested by temptation in the garden. Christ is God's son who was tested by temptation in the wilderness. Um, Adam's disobedience had, uh, had this effect by virtue of the covenant that God made with him in his seed. Uh, this implies that God made a similar arrangement with his son so that, in, so that he is the federal representative of those in union with him. And I just thought that was interesting. Uh, Adam, we say, Van, you, you, I think you drove home numerous times when we were talking to him in Renahan's book and later that, uh, that the federal heads, you know, when they make the covenant, they're going to be tested eventually. Mm -hmm. And uh, but so Adam was tested by temptation, but he was in the garden. He was in the garden. And I was thinking, man, he, he, he had it. He had it. Uh, Everything. I say, <laughs> it, yeah, he had it. I won't say it was easy, but he he did. He had it, he had it easy. And then we have uh, Christ who came on the scene, and he was the you know federal head. He was tested by temptation, but he was in the wilderness. He had nothing, and the, just the the stark contrast between the garden and all that was in the garden and, and fighting temptation, and then being out there in the desert and fighting temptation where you have nothing, nothing's around. You just see nothing but sand. Yeah, just Adam. Like, Adam can eat from from any tree in the garden except that one. And then, as Christ goes into the wilderness, you know he's he's fasting for forty days yeah. and forty nights. Yeah, yeah. I said uh, desert wilderness. That's that's more correct. That's what my translation has uh, in the wilderness. So, uh, so then there are, there are others we can look at. Uh, the uh, but I, I mean, they, there's the covenant of God with uh, Jesus Christ and the elect, uh, those that are in Christ, uh, and then the eternal promise of life for the the elect. So, I mean, there, 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 there are scriptural references that substantiate what Beaky showed us. Okay, here's the statement it's the eternal covenant, and here, here are the biblical references that, that substantiate what I'm saying that it's a, a, a it was an eternal covenant that. that it, that was there before time began. And that, and if you think about it, you can say, how can that be? But it, it, the scripture points to it. And then as you read the scripture, you see the, uh, the uh, uh, types and prototypes. Uh, so I, it, to me, this is just fascinating to study this. And, and it, you can really get bogged down, not bogged down, but you can get really in deep and uh, uh, 
and spent a lot of time uh, just studying all this. And uh, so mm-hmm. I, uh, I enjoyed reading this. It, it is, it get, does get kind of deep as you get into it. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, it's good stuff. Good, good, yeah. good. Uh, uh, then yeah. he goes into going, I'm sorry. Oh, go, go, go ahead, brother. Go then ahead. He, then he starts, he goes into, he starts talking about the historical development of the doctrine of the council of peace. Uh, and that's, uh, that's on, uh, starts on page 595 um and i started i uh, ran I, I was doing my notes last night as the ladies were doing their book talk and i i started getting uh, uh, i guess uh, a little tired and so i i just started uh, making notes in my in my book but if we when we look at the historical development um it we see that um he says, and uh, and starting, he said, early in the Reformed theology, one finds the seeds of the doctrine of the Council of Peace or the Covenant of Redemption, and then he 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 refutes and he says, contrary contrary to the theory, Wellham Gas uh, was not uh, uh, the, the concept was not invented by Johannes Concius. Uh, Con- I, I I probably messed his name up. But uh, he said that the eternal the eternal covenant was identified by a, a Johannes, uh, and I'm not even going to try. <laughs> Back in the four, 1482, uh, he during his uh, life, uh, which spanned from 1482 to 1531, that he identified the eternal covenant with God entering a covenant with His Son, and then he, he uh, John Calvin wrote of the, this this uh, doctrine. Uh, uh, the covenant which he made with Christ with all his members, but it, but it, he said it didn't appear that Calvin developed the idea of the uh, eternal covenant of redemption in his theology. And then he moves in that the doctrine of eternal covenant between the father and son was conceived in a, um, uh, a the, 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 theological matrix of the Trinity nurtured, uh, nurtured by the reformed teaching that Christ is the mediator according to his nature's human and divine. And then um, William, he quotes William Perkins, uh, said that Christ was called, uh, that Christ was called of his father from all eternity to form the office of mediator. Uh, and then as Christ is a mediator, that means that he was, first of all, pre, uh, predestined, predestinated as he was to be our head. And we were secondly predestined in him. So uh, yet as God, Christ also, together with the Father, he decreed all things and thus gives uh, voluntary consent to his purpose. And then he says, he went on and uh, uh, recognized the actual union with Christ uh, is, a, is uh, a covenantal, and that believers access to God's covenantal promise. We have access, believers have access to the covenantal, prom, pro, covenantal promise only in Christ for the office of Christ to which he set apart is to receive the promise of God for us and applied unto us. So, uh, I, I, you know, they went back and forth. And then he said, or in the 17th century, the doctrine of intra-trinitary, <coughs> excuse me, covenant redemption began to flower. So it wasn't until the early 17th century that the Trinitarian covenant of redemption began to, uh, to flower as seen in the in various writings of theologians. He mentioned Paul Bain, Thomas Hooker, and uh, in the writings of William Ames. Uh, and he specifically calls that out. He said William Ames, Ames who said that God's calling of Christ to his uh, mediatorial office. 
he has bound his son to this office through a special covenant expressed in Isaiah 53.10. So he says in there, bottom line is the the agreement between God and Christ was the kind of advanced application of our redemption and deliverance of us to our surety. There's that word surety again, and our surety to us. So he's, again, he's laying it out in history of the scripture that it was a a surety of Christ that that provided a lot of this that we we, uh, have talked about. Um, and then he said that as far as the covenant of redemption, the first person to use that term was David Dickinson in 1638. And then from that point forward, many reformed theologians began making a distinction between the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace. And, um, and then he lists uh, some pretty well, uh, he mentioned uh, Gillespie, uh, Rutherford, John Owen, uh, uh, uh Willard, uh, Wilhelm Muss, A. Brakel, and then uh, Hodge and Boss. Um, and then, uh, so I, I don't know. I, I was telling Martin that when it gets down to like historical and all that stuff, that, that's, that, that's not one of my strong suits as far as I like reading it, but as far, as far as tracking it and retention, I, that's one of my challenges. But, uh, but, I guess but you know, you know, Mike, th- this is, the, I mean, th- this is where it like starts. I mean, you start uh, attaching names to events, names to things, and you, you know, and the more you see the names, the more familiar you get with with who yeah. they are. Uh, I mean, even now, I mean, for someone going through this chapter, they would already attach certain uh, names to certain things concerning covenant theology. So, mm-hmm. so that's, that's how it starts. And just the, yeah. the, the more you read, the more you just get familiar with these guys, the more you start sort of pigeonholing them into their, their historical and theological sort of uh, yeah. milieu, if I can say that word, their context. I think, yeah. I think it's also helpful to define the difference between the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace and i i really appreciate how beaky kind of laid it out where the covenant of grace was seen to be between um god and the elect and the covenant of redemption was seen to be between the father and christ and so they were trying to as you were saying mike throughout there's there was this period where in in history they were trying to make distinctions between the covenant of grace and the covenant of redemption but beaky was arguing that the covenant of grace and covenant of redemption are all kind of two different aspects of the same covenant yeah does that make sense yes so i'm curious man what are your thoughts as far as the covenant of grace and the covenant covenant of redemption is what does the 1689 have to say about that or or does it make mention of it What was that again? I just had Christian come in. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. So Beaky was talking about the covenant of grace and the covenant of redemption. And there is, mm-hmm. as as Mike was going through this historical overview of the development of the Council of Peace, Beaky mentioned that there was some who viewed covenant of grace and the covenant of redemption as two separate covenants. And Beaky was making the argument that they were the same covenant under the covenant of grace is just two different aspects. And I was wondering if the 1689, because I'm not, you know, obviously I only read the Presbyterian view of that, but does the 1689 or does the Baptistic view of the covenant of grace differ in any way than what Beaky was arguing? 
Yeah, and I don't have it here right right in front of me. I mean, I would have to look it up, but uh, they would definitely say that. Uh, I don't think that they would put the uh, tie the elect into Christ on the eternal covenant, the the Pact of Salutis, basically the uh, right. the the eternal covenant of redemption. I think they would they right. would uh, separate those two out. Yeah, and I think that's important. Uh, we see that o- over in my section on Abraham as well, where he says, even with the covenant with Abraham, there are the, those that say uh, God had two covenants with Abraham, uh, one uh, one for his, his people, one for his elect, and one for the nation. And then he quotes Nehemiah Cox and some other Baptists down there. So uh, talk about making it, that may be, that may be leading towards the, the point that, 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 uh, will is asking about mm-hmm. yeah I, I just uh i just opened it up here uh basically the 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 uh chapter on god's covenant it just has three paragraphs and i'll read the the, the first one is sort of introductory but i'll just quickly read the second two it says uh, moreover man having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall it pleased the lord to make a covenant of grace wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life, his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. And then paragraph three says, this covenant is revealed in the gospel. First of all, to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman and afterwards by farther steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. And it is founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. And it is alone by the grace of this covenant that all posterity of fallen Adam that ever were saved did obtain life and blessed immortality, man being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms on which Adam stood in his state of innocency. So to answer your question, it says uh, the covenant of grace is founded, founded in founded, that yeah. eternal covenant transaction. So yeah, basically, so they'd be distinct. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I got you. Thank okay. you. <clears throat> then uh, he, he, thank you uh, for that. And then uh, he moves on to the, uh, there's uh, theological implications for the council of peace. Uh, he starts out with the, and the introduction, this section, uh, um, and I'm reading from the top of page 599, the doctrine of God's covenant redemption with the Son has significant implications for other Christian doctrines, such as the Trinity, the atonement of Christ, the eternity, and conditions of uh, and the and conditions of the covenant of grace and the relationship between the covenant of grace and the gospel. Um, so when he t- starts talking about the council of peace and trinity, he 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 presents like arguments, and then he he says then in, in reply. But so he starts off with the first one, and he mentions that Carl uh, Barth objected to the doctrine of the covenant of redemption because he believed it undermined the unity of the Trinity. Uh, and so he says, in reply, we would argue that it is appropriate for us to use language of counsel and covenant for the eternal plan of the triune God, because through God, uh, because though God has one will, his will is related to the perspective of each divine person in, in the Trinity. Uh, to be sure, God's decree is properly an essential act or belongs to all three persons in common. They are one in essence, uh, as Willard wrote. However, God's one divine will engages each divine person's person according to the order 
among the persons of the Trinity so that each person has a distinct appropriation of God's purpose, particularly with regard to how that purpose is worked out. This arrangement is called a covenant only by way of an analogy, and it is accommodated to our, as it is accommodated to our understanding. I think that's a very important point right there. Yeah. Uh, that's called a covenant only by way of analogy. And this is the covenant of redemption as it's accommodated to our understanding. And there, I think, is, as Van read the 1689 to us, I think that's probably the point they're making as well. Uh, even though we use the word covenant because it's related to us, it's a biblical category to use. Uh, when we're talking about the eternal counsels of God and, and what happens uh, in the pact or the covenant uh, of the members of the of the trinity uh, then again we're using analogical language we really you know yeah. we, we we really are, are using language uh of uh, of the middle east, ancient near east of the susan to the treaties <clears throat> to try to understand that when actually we have no way at all for one thing i mean the covenant was made in eternity before time ever began uh, and so, you know, yeah. that, that immediately blows our categories. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Just when I, when I read this and then he goes into it and I won't read it, but it just, uh, within the, the different roles and the essence, but just, it's like they're uh, not that they're in competition, but the, the, the love that they show for one another, the love and respect for each, each of the, uh, of the, the, the persons of the Trinity. I mean, it's, to me, it's just, it's, it's, um, the, the love they had for one another, the father for the son, the son to the father, the son to the to the elect and how he presents them back. I mean, it's just it, uh, it's it's a it's a beautiful picture of love and how to love. It certainly is. Uh, then he, he talks about the uh, council of peace and atonement. And uh, then he starts off again with the uh, that he said, uh, the Holy Scriptures reveal that Christ offered himself freely and voluntarily through obedience to his father's will. Um, let's see, the cross was the revelation of the son's love for sinners. And then he says, one objection of this is, uh, one objection against the doctrine of, this, this is getting into this, the uh, substitutionary atonement, is that God would engage in gross injustice if required a righteous person to suffer for the sins of others. And then he says, in reply, we note that the doctrine of counsel of peace reveals that God the son, equal in majesty and glory with his father, willingly agrees to this purpose in the eternal covenant. Um, and then he said, Owen wrote, these things uh, proceeded from and were founded in the, will of, in the will of the Son of God. And it is it was an act of perfect liberty in him to engage in his pure concernments in this covenant. What he did, he did by choice in a way of uh, a condescension and love. The doctrine is crucial, Owen noted, to establish that Christ's suffering as a righteous man were just and equal, for they were not imposed upon him from above, but he voluntarily consented to them in the eternal counsel of peace. Therefore, Christ's showing death for his people's sins was not a miscarriage adjusted, but a revelation of the love of each person in the Trinity for lost sinners. And I, I you know, again, I've kind of hit on that earlier. So, I mean, it's just, again, seeing this and the, and the uh, it's just the, the, the love uh, that, that, the, that the Trinity has for, for sinners and, and for each person of the Trinity. I just thought, I mean, it, you, you, it's hard to understand. And, and again, like we said, we, we, it, it, the Trinity is uh, not, we could talk about it, but it's, but it's uh, something that's a, uh, not easily understood, if that makes any sense. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
uh, a lot of questions. And then he goes into the, um, the uh, council piece, again, this council piece and the attorney of the covenant of grace. Um, and the, the argument uh, he, he brings up, uh, uh, he, he starts off with saying that God's covenantal love for his people is from everlasting to everlasting. And he, he references Psalm and he says, saving grace was, was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. He references 2 Timothy uh, 1.9. He said, eternal life was promised before the world began uh, by, God that cannot, by a God that cannot lie. Yet how can this covenant be eternal when the promises were not revealed to mankind until after the fall? The doctrine of the council of peace shows us that God's covenant was actually initiated in eternity between the persons of the Trinity. And then he says, that he, he, he lists the, uh, an objection, and then he goes, here's the objection, and here's, here's my reply. It might be objected that the eternal covenant of redemption is not the same as the covenant of grace made with sinners in human history. As we saw a number, as we saw a number of, of sound Reformed uh, divines distinguish them as two covenants, they argued that the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace have different covenanting parties, the Father in Christ versus God and select sinners. Engage with different covenantal terms. The Father's promise to exalt Christ upon his accomplishment or redemption versus God's promise to give eternal life to all who believe. The covenant of redemption requires that Christ suffer for our sins, but the covenant of grace requires that we believe in Christ. And then he says, in reply, we say that God did not make a covenant of Christ as, con uh, as considered by himself, but is the surety of the elect. And he did not make a covenant with the people considered by this, but is in Christ the mediator. Uh, the covenant of grace with its promised salvation by grace from our work stands, I'm sorry, the covenant of grace with its promise to salvation by grace apart from our work stands upon God's eternal counsel of Christ's redeeming work. Uh, the requirement placed upon Christ to live and die is the surety and the requirement placed upon the people to trust in Christ are not mutually exclusive, but fit together in one covenant. Uh, the, first the first requirement pertains to the legal necessity of satisfying, satisfying God's justice, and the second pertains to the instrument of receiving Christ and salvation. And then I like the way uh, he, he kind of, on this next paragraph, he says, the Bible does not speak of three covenants, but of two, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. God made one covenant with Adam and his seed and another covenant with the last Adam and his seed. Uh, and then he says, uh, he goes on and talks about in the covenant of grace, God made some promise specifically to Christ, Christ regarding his exaltation and seed and some promises to people in union with Christ. However, two sets of promises, however, two sets of promises can cohere in one covenant for God's covenant with Abraham included promises specifically for Adam and other promises that Adam shared with his seed. God made the eternal covenant of grace with his son as both heir and mediator of the inheritance gained by death. Christ's people receive this inheritance only by union with him. Um, so, I mean, he, he goes on and he says, in arguing for one covenant of grace as opposed to the distinct uh, covenants with Christ and his people, we are not suggesting that Reformed the theologians who differ with us have departed from, from the uh, orthodoxy. The Reformed confessions do not address this question, though we believe it is a more though we believe it is a more scriptural to speak of one covenant of grace with two dimensions. So, I mean, and he goes on and I think, uh, I, I know, do you, do you have anything to add, add to what, what I briefly covered on the council of peace and the eternity of the covenant of grace? 
What what does he mean by two dimensions there? In your last statement there. Uh, let's see. Uh, it is possible for godly Christians to distinguish between the covenant redemption and the covenant grace while still holding the sound doctrine regarding Christ, his redeeming work, and its application. Both perspectives may be abused to the detriment of the gospel. Okay, so theologians holding to one covenant of grace with Christ and his seed may be more prone to, dis to diminish human responsibility, breaking, uh, break the link between election on one hand and conversion on the other. Other. Uh, and then he says, uh, on the other, fall into the air that God already counts as, as righteous, the elect in Christ, even though they do not have not yet believed. And perhaps even think God's elect will be saved, regardless of whether they have a living faith that produces works and obedience. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, I, oh, I got you. I got you. Yeah. yeah it's, but, it's, it's, I, go ahead, bro. No, you go on. Uh, it's it sounds like a controversy among the particular Baptist on the yeah. Yeah. doctrine yeah. of eternal justification. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That, I'm that, thinking uh, John Gill. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. One not one of uh, not one of Gill's better moments. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, but again, that is an important point. Yeah. But I'm wondering. Uh, okay. Well, that that was that was good. Thank you, buddy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And I, again, I probably didn't do it the justice it deserves. <laughs> No, I, I, I think you were very thorough. Yeah. Um, and then uh, uh, striving on, and he, he goes into more, but I want to get to the practical applications. And when, when Will was reviewing the practical applications in chapter 29, I, I, think, I think the practical applications in 30, I mean, I, they, they complement each other. And some of them sound like almost the same, but maybe uh, taking it to another level. But uh, uh, he, they, he says this, these, these, uh, have, the council of peace does have application for life. And he said, we should trust in Christ alone. I mean, uh, and that's kind of uh, familiar with what, uh, what, uh, Will was talking, um, uh, trust in Christ alone. Uh, let us go to Christ with empty hands, porn spirit, knowing that all our riches must come from him. Let us cast off our own righteousness and, and dung and long to be clothed in Christ as our righteousness before God. Um, you see, uh, so, I mean, the uh, we, we trust in God alone. Uh, God is, uh, salvation is not offered to us. Uh, oh, the, the condition. I mean, uh, one, and I don't know if we need to get in this, but uh, it says, um, uh, are there conditions uh, or not conditions uh, for that? And it, it gets back into how you define uh, a, a condition. But uh, we, we can come back around on that after the applications if we if we want to. And then the second application is we should marvel at God's eternal love. And uh, he uh, and, uh, you know, we do. I mean, we should marvel at, at, the, at the love we see in the Trinity and God's uh, eternal, infinite love for for his son and uh, his son for his father. And he he, he uh, quotes uh, Bre uh, Breckel. Breckel said the covenant reveals a love which is unparalleled, exceeding all comprehension. How blessed and what a wonder, wonder it is to have, to have been considered and known in this covenant, to have been the object of the eternal mutual delight of the Father and the Son to save you. Oh, how blessed is, is he who is incorporated into this covenant, in this covenant and being enveloped and uh, erratic. <laughs> 
I'm, I'm having these, problems. These, 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 these Dutch and Germans are going to kill you, aren't yeah. they? <laughs> yeah. By the way, his eternal love is stirred up by in love in return, exclaiming, we love him because he first loved us. I mean, so it's just a, the marvel at this eternal love, this this love we see uh, between the God uh, God and the Father, Son and Son and the Father and, and then uh, his love for sinners. And then we should examine ourselves to see if we are in Christ. Uh mm -hmm. Because apart from Christ, we 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 are we are hopeless. We are we were nothing. Uh, and I, when I was reading this too, I mean, we we should uh, periodically we should say we should examine ourselves. And I, I go back to the, 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 when we were studying First uh, John. I mean, uh, that's a good way to, to to do a kind of go and examine your life and you know read First John, examine and your and answer the uh, examine yourself and say, am I in Christ and you know, it gives you confidence. It gives you assurance. Uh, then number four is we should contemplate the loyalty inherent in love. Um, and then he's, uh, he's, he says, it is amazing to think that God freely chose to manifest the Father's love for the Son and the Spirit by means of eternal covenant and the deity. Love need not be sealed in covenantal and covenant promises to be true love, but but by God's will, the strongest bonds of love are covenantal. This reveals something to us about God's love, especially his loyalty or steadfast love. Love does good to all, but especially delights to bind itself in commitments that express union with and partnership with the beloved. Uh, the uh, number five, we should honor our, our covenant commitments, especially the duties laid upon us in the covenant of grace. Um, and then he says, as far as that, we should, uh, um, uh, let me find out. He said, we should not uh, regard our co covenant as a hindrance, but as a holy engagement, well-suited to enable us to live the highest life. Um, the, uh, number six, we should rest confidently in our hope that if we are in Christ, God will save us to the end. God has not only promised salvation to us, but he has promised our salvation to Christ. And then uh, number six, we should glorify God for his covenant in Christ. The covenant of redemption grounds all of God's saving works in the will of the eternal, or the eternal triune God. And then he, he, he quotes Boss wrote, here it is God who issues the requirement of redemption as God the Father, and is God who, for the fulfillment of that requirement, becomes the guarantor as God the Son. Once again, it is God to whom belongs the application of redemption as God is God and God the Holy Spirit, and so um, I mean, so the, these these applications. I mean, really, it's uh, you know, it shows um, trusting God alone. We trust in God alone because He's faithful. He's a loving, uh, as that covenantal love. We marvel at His love. Uh, uh, examine ourselves. I mean, we should be examining ourselves uh, with with God's Word all the time, and God's Word is our 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 measure, our, our tool mm -hmm. to do that. Um, uh, but, uh, real quick, do we want to, do, do, uh, I know our time's running short. Uh, do, do we, you want me to go on and pass it to Marvin Van, or do we want to talk about, is it conditional or non-conditional? Well, we, we, we're gonna, uh, we're, I think we, we want to save Marvin's section to next time because yeah. it is a, uh, uh, it is very involved. And so we don't want to, you know, have him 
be rushed. I mean, it really is the, the, the ground and the basis sort of for our differences on how we view the covenant of grace with our Presbyterian brothers. And so we want to give time and attention to that. Yeah. So, so instead of him rushing through, we're already at about an hour and a half. Uh, we'll just sort of cut it off here. But what was there another thing you wanted to, to, to say about your section, Mike? Yeah, it just, uh, it, the question is, is the, uh, the question he asks is, is the covenant of grace conditional or unconditional? And he says, or in other words, when God promises eternal life in the covenant, does he require conditions that must be fulfilled in order for him to grant life? Mm -hmm. And then uh, he goes in, he says, how, how you answer that question is how you define uh, a condition. And uh, so he, he said, it depends on how you define it or use the term. And he said, it, by, he said, if by the word, we simply mean something that must come come to pass for God's promise of life to be realized, then certainly God's covenant of grace has, has conditions for us. We must have faith in Christ to be justified and have eternal life. We must have holiness to see the Lord, beginning with the cleansing of the heart that faith works. Uh, in this regard, some theologians speak of faith in Christ as a condition for the covenant. And then he goes on, he says, however, if by condition we refer to something we do that fulfills God's covenant requirements so that we have a right to the promised life, then God's covenant of grace is unconditional for us. Our justification is in no way a reward of, of debt, 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 but a gift of grace. Faith is merely the instrument of justification and adoption, the empty hand by which we receive Christ. Holiness is not the price of eternal life, but the way to arrive there. For all God's people believe and believe and do, they can never say, I did my part, now God owes it to me. All is of grace. So, I mean, I, I mm -hmm. thought that was a good section, and I'm sorry I skipped over it. Yeah, so, yeah, and 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 that, that really is a key question, because uh, what, I guess a more fundamental question is, what is the covenant of grace? Because as Beaky defines the covenant of grace, being in the Old Testament and coming forward with the, the different administrations, there is that reckoning that right. he would have to do with the uh, uh, with the conditions that are in those other covenants, where, as I would say, Reformed Baptists really doesn't have to deal with that because we say there's only one covenant of grace. It's the new covenant in Christ's blood, and there are no conditions on it as far as us you know, meritoriously achieving that. And so, uh, but, but Marvin is going to talk more about that. Yeah. We're going to devote a that's lot a good of space. That's a good setup that for chapter time. 31. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, man, unless you have any parting comments, we will close our time today. I think Marvin has to run. Probably will has to run. We all have to run, right? Yes. Anything else? All right. Well, I will take that as a no. And so, uh, so why don't uh, I close this in prayer uh, today? We'll thank the Lord for what we have talked about. Father, we give you great praise for this. We thank you that you have uh, chosen to make this covenant. We thank you that it is founded upon the eternal covenant of redemption in eternity past, where uh, the the individual persons of the Trinity have. Uh, have deemed and designed to to make this covenant father one with another and how it is actually implemented and carried out in time 
and we see all of these covenants, Father, and and, and we do admit that there are disagreements as to how we see these things, but Father, we do see you working, uh, Presbyterian and Baptist, working with humanity through covenants. And so we thank you for that. We thank you that even in that regard, all of them are gracious, Father, because you condescend to work with us and you condescend to, uh, to, as it were, bind yourself to certain things and promise certain things, Father. And so we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you that all of this is of grace and we give you great praise. So, Father, as we go out today, Father, I pray that you would just help us to be so thankful for all that you've done and to live in the light of the covenant of grace that you have given to us. And Father, may we go out and share the gospel freely with so many people that they might enter into this as well, that they might be saved and they might be trophies of your grace. And we ask this in Christ's name. Brothers, thank you, and may the Lord richly bless you today. You as well. Thank you. Thank you.